Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Ryan Ike, who is a BAFTA-nominated composer for video games based out of Seattle, Washington. Ryan's worked on a ton of games, including Gunpoint, Reigns Game of Thrones, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, Frog Fractions 2, and West of Loathing, and many, many others. And Ryan's style of music is super diverse, going from making incredible folk music for Where the Water Tastes Like Wine to making hilarious old-timey Western music for West of Loathing and really everything in between. On top of all of this, Ryan also loves to help fellow audio designers in the game industry. So in this interview, we talk a lot about breaking into the game industry, building a creative career, what it takes to get started, and how to sustain your career over the long term. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Ryan Ike. Okay, so uh, first question for you is one of my favorite things about you, and it's when we kind of met, I learned about your micro jams. That is like a, just a delight. And I want you to talk about them, what the process was and what the like impetus was of even doing them and what they are. Sure. Uh, well, that's very sweet. I thought, I thought, first of all, that you, because <laughs> you said like, when I met you, one of my favorite things was, and I thought like, it's going to be the BART station that's so full of human feces that the escalator doesn't go. That's what he's going to talk about. Right. So I'm very, I, I don't know if I'd say pleased, surprised. <laughs> the fact that I, that was one of the first stories I told you about isn't the thing. No need to explain podcast listeners don't need so uh google it yeah i had this series um that i did when i was trying to kind of make my way into the industry called micro jams the idea was every week you know as i was like a full-time music teacher kind of driving all over the bay area and then in my little crenellations of free time trying to improve my composition craft you know because especially because that was something i'd never studied uh formally i kind of really only started doing it like in grad school, once I got out, so I was like, I need to get better at this. And as for the impetus of starting it, that's that's all my wife, Alicia. She did the thing that a lot of the best people in your life will do, where they bully you into doing something good for yourself. <laughs> so she basically was like, she was nicer than this, but only like ten percent nicer than this. She was like, you piece of shit, you're not going to be happy unless you do video games. Like that's what you want. I can see it. Why are you like this? And she just like sat me down in a coffee shop. I was like, you're going to write a new piece every week. It's going to be like short. You're going to challenge yourself. Just fucking do it. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I, um, yeah, I, I started doing this idea where like I, I had a very limited time frame, usually just Wednesdays, like in the morning until like roughly noon when I had to leave to go teach. And that was it. And every week I would write a short piece in a different style. And the idea was that I had to choose something about it that would challenge me. It could be a genre I've never done before. It could be using the tech that I had, which was extremely limited at the time to kind of like push it as far as I could using a new plugin or a new way of processing that I'd never tried before or didn't even really understand. It could be about um, writing music in a style that I hate and seeing if I can make it something that I actually enjoy. And always the overarching challenge of you only have this much time 
on one day a week. This has to get done before you leave. And the rule was no matter how good or bad it was, and spoiler alert, a lot of them are bad. <laughs> no matter how good or bad it was, I, I had to post it publicly. It had to go up on SoundCloud. It had to go up on my website. Like The idea being to get more comfortable with showing people your process and showing people that vulnerability and the fact that like not everything you put out as a creative, even on professional projects eventually, is perfect and, and amazing. And I did this for you know, almost two years until I ended up finally landing my first like major gig and spending most of my time writing that. And you can find them if you Google my name and just the word micro jams as one word. I know that's not a word, but figure it out. You can <laughs> you can find these. They're on my SoundCloud. There's a whole playlist of them. And oofa doofa, <laughs> you know, like there's some in there that I'm still kind of <laughs> proud of to this day. There's something like this one actually kind of kind of kicks a little bit, but there are so many words like. I go back and look at the projects for these, like the open up the logic files. And it's like, did I know what a panning knob was? Like everything is coming like straight down the center. Like the mixing is atrocious. One like fucking guitar had like three compressors like chained together on just one track. I don't know why one of them was off. I'm like, what was I like? <laughs> like, what was I? How much cough syrup did I had before I did this one? Because like it got wild. So you can still go hear them. And I hope that they're a tool for both kind of displaying how I set about kind of trying to train myself because I had musical training. I had a musical academic background. Not that that's of course the only way to get the skills you need to get into, uh, into this industry as we're both proponents of, right? Like you super don't have to go to school if you don't want to, there's other ways, but I, I did have that. So I had that musical background, but I, you know, I needed so much more training in like widening my compositional spectrum, like what I was comfortable with. And I a hundred percent when people are like, how did you, prepare yourself musically to like do the thing that you do now. Like it was this like a thousand percent. Like I can look back at these and be like, I've done a Western soundtrack now. And the reason I felt prepared for that was because I'd done several of these dorky little like short tunes that were in that style. Because at the time I was like, I don't know how to do this. And like, it got me far enough along into experimenting with it where it was like, okay, I kind of understand this, you know, I've done horror and I understand better how to do that now. Cause I forced myself out of that comfort zone early and it's not about perfecting it in one go and being like, now I know how to do horror or a Western score or folk music or whatever. It's that, you know, you're greasing the gears on getting used to digging into places that are not your comfort zone and going, how do I get better at this? That's really what it did for me was teach me like, it's okay to jump into something you don't understand. Because when you do that, when you dive into those waters and you're like, where the hell am I? Like doing this process helps kind of just make me more comfortable being in a space that wasn't normally my space creatively. So I super recommend it, especially if you're listening and you're, you know, whatever your creative endeavor is, it doesn't have to be audio, but if you're listening to this and you're trying to kind of like improve, maybe you're trying to push your way into a professional space, like making yourself do something short every week or every month or daily, whatever your metric might be, that's comfortable for you. And then holding yourself accountable that like, you have to finish it by a certain time. You have to try something new for you every single time you do one and you have to post it publicly. I, I think those are the three key factors of doing this. And again, my, my wife gets all the credit because uh, she set up all three of those and she was like, do it dummy. And now I have a career, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is uh, wildly effective because it just, you know, now when a client is like, can you do like post pop, like neocore grind wave? And they just say a bunch of words that they saw on a Spotify playlist. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And then I hang up the call and I freak out for 20 minutes in the shower, like, crying with my cutoffs on and then I just figure it out because that's the thing this taught me how to do is go like okay you can figure this out even if you don't know what you're doing you'll get there 
Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And one important thing that I also love is how you talk about your initial setup, like your tech setup, your computer, how that worked, because there's a misconception of <laughs> setup is really uh, a generous misconception of gear, right? With with everything we do, everyone's after the latest, the hottest plugins and all that. And you uh, let's say you weren't back then. And I want so charitable. Please tell me about so charitable the right setup now because it's beautiful. <laughs> so this is this is not meant to be a brag. This is meant to set up what you can do with absolute trash technology. My my first game that I released, I was very fortunate to work on something that did super well. We went to the BAFTAs and got nominated a couple of times. It was like number one on Steam for a good while. And I'm saying that because I wrote the soundtrack to that game on the setup I'm about to describe. <laughs> so it was. One of those, I don't know if y'all remember, because I don't, they don't sell these anymore, but like one of those MacBooks that was like the white, like plastic ass, you know, it looks like somebody went to the container store and like just stole shit and melted it down and was like, I can make a MacBook casing out of this. It had those white keys that like touch it once. And it's like, I'm going to remember what your fingerprint looks like forever, boy. And it just like got nasty so fast. It was disgusting. I hated this thing. It could barely run like, like a GIF. <laughs> <laughs> it had trouble with like uh, essentially a visual flipbook. It was like, I don't know how to process this, man. You're asking a lot. So that was my computer. It wasn't great. Uh, it crashed constantly. If I asked Logic to do anything, you know, more strenuous than running maybe a handful of instruments and some processing at a time, it was like, nope, no, thank you to that. Good, sir. I, I, I bow out respectfully. And by bow out, it meant turn off and not turn on again for 27 minutes. So I did a lot of like, freezing tracks where you like you you write out a track in your DAW and then you freeze it so like it's stuck this way now you can't mess with it or change it at all but it's not using a processing power it's very time consuming to like freeze them and unfreeze them when you want to make changes it's it takes a lot of time I had to do a lot of kind of workarounds with things a lot of writing part of a track bouncing it so now it's just an audio file and then importing that back into a new track so I can continue to add to it without things taking a processing space my quote unquote MIDI keyboard was just a Casio like Privia digital piano. It was like 350 bucks. It was like a full size digital piano that just like happened to have MIDI outs. Like it's not designed for this. It doesn't have any like things to like manipulate like drums or like any, any knobs or sliders. It's just like, I'm not supposed to be here. It seemed to be saying to me every time I would use it for this. <laughs> so I got really good at like playing my parts in because I am a pianist, but then going into my DAW and like anytime I wanted to make an adjustment to volume or a filter or, you know, the mod wheel or any of the things you're constantly adjusting on a regular MIDI keyboard that's meant for this, but you know, has all these assignable knobs and buttons and sliders for that kind of thing. I got really good at going into logic and doing it with my mouse which is more time consuming. And now, unfortunately, I'm stuck this way. <laughs> and I prefer that because that's just what I'm what I'm used to doing. So I'm ruined in that way. I was crammed in the corner of our little apartment. Like we had like a dining room area. First piece of furniture my wife and I ever bought was like this really pretty like cherry oak dining table. And I was like just kind of crammed with like my spine bent at like a 35 degree like obtuse angle at the end of it. Like I could barely fit between my desk, and we'll get to that, and my <laughs> table behind me. The piano was to my left, perpendicular. So I was like always like kind of twisting around, just kind of trying to like twist my neck to like see the screen and see what I was doing. Uh, and my desk was a <laughs> a roll away microwave cart. <laughs> it was like uh, it had wheels and it had like black mesh like shelving, kind of like two shelves and then like the top was like a cheap like faux wood base it was like 
maybe two and a half feet by two feet. Like the laptop fit on it and that was it. It had little hooks on the side for you to put your ladle, which I like, <laughs> which I hung my cables and my headphones from. And one of the worst moments of my life with that setup was my friend Ivy came over, who is uh, a lot of you probably know her as one of the composers of Steven Universe. She's incredible. And this was before she landed that show. We just met in California. And she looked at it and she very sweetly, this was not intended with any malice because she's wonderful, but she was like, oh, I have the, I have that same cart. And I was like, immediately like relieved, like, oh my God, <laughs> that makes me feel so much better. It's like, you know, my setup is like really janky and she looks really embarrassed. She's like, my microwave's on it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an unintentional knife in the heart for, for a good while. But my point is that <laughs> I had a little bit above the bare minimum because the bare minimum is like a computer with some software that you can use to make music garage band like that's the bare minimum you can absolutely get started with that i was lucky even though my setup sounds real jank that i had like a place to put it and a, a digital piano you know but that was what i started with i had to listen to my mixes on everything in the house that made audio because i had crappy laptop speakers and a pair of like five dollar j buds like the cheapest wired earbud headphones you can order on Amazon. And so I would make a mix, I would burn it to a CD because this fucking thing, that was when CDs existed and this thing actually like ejected a circle of data into my hand like it's the fucking 1920s. <laughs> and I <laughs> would take it around my house and I would put it in like my Xbox and play it out the TV speakers. I would listen to it on my wife's laptop, which had better speakers than mine. I would take it into the car and listen to it on the car speakers and by the way our car was trash it was the ryan's early studio of cars so like it wasn't none of these were like great speakers but combining all these audio sources together i was kind of able to get a picture of like okay when something has more bass response this is going to sound bad i gotta fix it when something has like a tinnier cheaper speaker this is going to sound bad i gotta fix it so it was definitely time consuming in the way that having you know not the ideal setup or not the ideal tech always is and why it feels great to upgrade when you are able to. But the point I do want to make is that, again, if you're if you're looking to get it started, whether in audio or something creatively adjacent, I would say try to see like, do I have the bare minimum to make anything at all? Most people who are like seeking this kind of like creative avenue probably do. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be shiny and great. And it's probably going to cause a lot of friction. But you know, if you have like the software or whatever you need to like make the thing, which is a barrier for many people. I understand that. That's enough to get started. And I would encourage folks to get started because you never know when you're going to make something awesome on a terrible setup. It happens all the time. And then that might be the key to you being able to upgrade or eventually kind of move forward into something that's more, more comfortable and more conducive to what your output is. It wasn't great. I wish I, I, wish I had a picture of it. To just like shakily hold up and be like, don't be like me. Don't be corner boy like me. But it sounds like corner boy turned out great. So that's wonderful. Corner, corner boy has a lot of other. Uh, my life's littered with corners, dog. It's just <laughs> I, I don't live in that particular one anymore. But yeah, I'm doing OK. Yeah, you're, you're now spread out in multiple corners. You've evolved like a butterfly from your corner cocoon. It's perfect. <laughs> from my right angle shaped cocoon. It's perfect. But as you kind of evolved and got these gigs and started finally getting paid and all that sort of stuff. There's a common misconception with what we do of, oh, clearly you were set from the get go. Like you didn't have to work any side hustles like, oh, you were fine immediately, which isn't true. 
And I know that you also have taught on the side for many, many years. And a lot of people who get started in the industry kind of have a like stigma with any side job. They feel like they're failing or something like that when they're not 100% doing the thing, even if they're just starting out. So can you talk to that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a really good stigma to just completely vaporize from orbit. Like I would love to, if I could like Thanos snap my fingers and make it just go away right now, I absolutely would because it is really, I think it's really harmful. And I suffered from it too, to be completely clear. So when I was starting out, I had finished grad school. And again, Wicked didn't need to go to grad school to fucking do this job. <laughs> so that's a whoopsie on my part. That's a that's a $40,000 whoopsie that I made. Um, what was I saying? I got really distracted by how much debt I'm in. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So I got out of school and I was teaching music lessons full time already very fortunate that I could do something at least adjacent, like music related. And I happen to teach piano, which is like the most, especially in like Bay Area, California, just kind of the culture out there. There's a lot of folks who want piano lessons. So I was lucky that I was able to cobble together, eventually kind of not a great income for that area, but but something. And once I got my first gig that was going to pay something, I still taught piano lessons full time, all throughout the like year and a half to two years of writing that soundtrack for uh, a game called Gunpoint because no fault of anyone's, but they didn't have funding. And this was still relatively early days, kind of like the second major wave of like indie games after like Super Meat Boy and Braid and that kind of thing. So like complete Wild West. And Tom Francis, our, our developer, was wonderful and, you know, cut me in on a rev share deal, which in this case actually worked out really well in a way that it often doesn't <laughs> unless the game is wildly successful but that meant that i was not being paid during the process i was going to be paid on the back end of any sales that we had so i still had to work my um full-time lesson schedule so i would pretty much get up in the morning right from like seven or eight to two or three when kids got out of school and then go out and teach until like 10 or 11 most weekdays and then a little bit Sundays as well. It wasn't my favorite and uh, I'm not encouraging anyone to compare themselves to me. If you work more hours than that on a side hustle or less, it doesn't mean that your struggle is any less than mine. That's just kind of what my situation was for a while, you know, and to be fair, a lot of time in the car, got to listen to my audiobooks and stuff. So it wasn't like constantly, but it was, you know, it was tiring. And then gunpoint came out and very fortunately for me to, to a lot of success. And so uh, I went from being, you know, the thing I'd been since I left for college, which was broke, to suddenly having more money than I really understood what to even do with. We sunk a lot of it into student loans. We, you know, did some upgrades. We traveled a bit, but it was like, whoa, what do I do with this? And I sort of had that mentality that you were, were speaking to where it's like, okay, this is, is this me like making it? Like I've made it. So I, I won't need to teach anymore. And that's, <laughs> like wickedly, hilariously, wildly untrue uh, as to what happened. I kept all those students on partially because I was kind of afraid to let them go because I was still like, okay, this is one success. Who's to say I will have another, but also between student loan debt, you know, which for my wife and I were, we both did a lot of academia. So it was very, even scholarships aside, it was very kind of prodigious, the amount that we had to deal with. So there was that. And there was just like, you know, it's California. There's a lot of scarcity going on. And so I kept teaching. As I was looking for new gigs, thinking that as I got my like second and third and fourth project going, I would start to lose these students or not need a side hustle anymore. But it just kind of wasn't the case, especially because, you know, this might be a thing we also talk about if it comes up, but I made some networking mistakes where I assumed, okay, I've got my first gig. 
I don't need to try it anymore because the, you know, this one did well. So the second and third one will just kind of roll in and they wicked <laughs> super didn't do that. So I had kind of a low there for a minute. So I kept students on and then it just became like a habit for a long time that like I was always worried about losing this security net of like, what if my game career collapses? And what I understand now uh, is that I, I think I was valid in being scared. But at the same time, thing you and I have talked about is that you kind of need to take risks in a creative career like this to have the growth that you want to have. And it's something that I do, you know, mildly regret. I loved all my students, but like if I had maybe started to cut some of them sooner, I could have made a lot of space for my career earlier. But it is something where I had this side hustle up until literally the present day. I still have a couple of students that I teach uh, on the side. I've pared everything down to just the few that I really just genuinely love and they love music so much that I, I'm, that's the reason I'm not letting them go. And once they decide they are ready to move on, if I don't decide that first, then that will be when I go, okay, you know, I wish you well and not replace them. And I'm, I'm working a full-time composer's schedule and then just have like three families that I teach on top of it because they love it so much that my stupid soft Minnesotan heart couldn't let them go. But I think the thing that I learned from that process was A, it's okay to have a side hustle. B, it's almost universal. So if you're getting into a creative career and you're like, well, why do I still have to work at Subway or why am I still cleaning houses or whatever you're doing? Like, because that's the deal. <laughs> that's what you and literally almost all of us have to do to make it work. And you may have to do it for a really long time, even after you see some major successes on the creative side. Like it's not abnormal. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean that you haven't made it until you quit that stuff. It's that for most of us, this is the deal. And I hope that's not depressing because I'm not saying you can't let that stuff go eventually. And I, I certainly probably could have and should have let it go sooner. But there is the idea of that safety net and that, that kind of security of like, I have this to fall back on. And I think for all of us, there comes a point where you have to kind of look at your career and go like, when am I ready to take a risk on potentially really ascending? But to take that risk, I have to let this safety net go. And that is scary, but I, I think it's a worthwhile thing to every, you know, year, a couple of months, like examine where you're at and be like, am I ready to cut this? And if you're not, that is okay, I think. But uh, I wish it's something that I had examined earlier because I might have been braver earlier than I was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of safety nets, you, you mentioned grad school, which I see a lot of people go into kind of academia or, or studying music in a grad school context kind of as that because it's hard, hard to know as soon as you graduate school what the hell do I do with this degree? Now I know Chopin better than anyone else. Great. Cool. So useful. Cool. So like, <laughs> I, I, I noticed that there is a kind of fear. And this is, I think, very valid after graduating undergrad or grad school. Of like, now what? Like the, the routines are gone from school. The like things you're told to do every single day are gone when you graduate or leave or whatever. So can you talk about, let's say with grad school specifically, what it was like near the end and that transition out of it when you were like, okay, well, I'm done with school forever. Uh, like that, what was that kind of uptick like? And you weren't even in Seattle at that point. So what no. was that even like? I was in the Bay Area. So first off, don't talk shit about my dog, Chopin. <laughs> right? Like watch I it. Love he, him, was, actually. he was 11 feet tall. He had like a 15 note like hand span. And he was like a big, sad, like Polish boy who just like pined after women he could never have his whole life and wrote a bunch of, he was like the original goth. All right. So fucking, <laughs> he was Morrissey without, you know, being completely fucking gross. <laughs> like, like it turned out Morrissey is. So like, watch your shit. But secondly, yeah, I a hundred percent like admit and have admitted for some time that I, and I want to preface like we spoke on before, if you decide to go to school for 
your creative field for audio or whatever it is, rat. I'm never saying don't do it. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying it, for me, my, my thing is always it's based on how you learn. If you're like me and you, you learn better in a classroom setting with someone else kind of putting obligations and deadlines on you, then sweet. You know, that could be the good path for you, but it is not the necessary path. And so I finished my undergrad with a piano like performance degree. And I had learned a lot of music theory and other things that I would eventually use in composition. But I, I graduated with a piece of paper that said him good at piano job question mark. And I waved it around for a while and nothing <laughs> happened. <laughs> Surprising no one. And so a thousand percent, I, you know, unfortunately can admit like I went to graduate school because not, not wholly because of this, but largely because I was, I was scared. Like I, I, I had that feeling that you're describing of like, okay, I have this music knowledge and this whole time, even since I was like in high school, I was like, it'd be really cool to make music for video games. That's what I want to do. It wasn't like I discovered that I already knew and I was too scared to pursue it. And I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know what the steps were. I felt like there were a lot of gaps in my knowledge. And so I'm not saying it was entirely driven by this, but the element of being scared to just start like out in the void of life was a lot for me. And so I went to graduate school hoping that I would get enough composition specific study because I hadn't really studied composition itself. I'd written some stuff on my own up to that point. Like, okay, this is what I need. This will be the thing that makes me ready. And then in my particular case, I went to uh, San Francisco State, which is a great program. I'm not slagging any of the students or the staff there because uh, I had some wonderful experiences there. But uh, I Chihuahua, their, <laughs> their program, it turned out uh, in a way that was maybe not laid out fully for me when I called to kind of interview and ask, like, you know, would this be suitable for working in media, which was my shady way of saying I wanted to work in video games, but I was too scared to say it. So I was like, uh, media, which is nothing. You could make music for fucking for music boxes and player pianos and like that's media. Like I could inscribe like part of my like recital piece like onto a, a sticker pack. <laughs> sell it at Redbubble. That's media. That's nothing. It's garbage. But I said it all the time because I was really scared. And they were like, yeah, it'd be great. And I got there and they were like, actually, what we're going to do is just like 20th century atonal like nightmare sounds. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah. So like, you know how like this is like really cool to think about how it was made? I'm like, yeah. They're like, yeah, none of it's cool to listen to, though. And I was like, uh huh. And they're like, anyway, do that for three years. And so <laughs> stuff like my you know one of my favorite examples that i talk about a lot is um there's this guy in atonal music named uh, john cage a lot of you i'm sure have heard of that has a lot of really cool conceptions about ways that music can be made that are outside the box like you know his famous piece 433 is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence and you sit there and whatever you hear in your environment that's the music which sounds pretty stupid <laughs> on its face but it is you know I've, I've tried it once and it can be kind of a fun like meditative Treaties on like the world can be music. I get that. And one of my favorite examples of something he did was he took sheet music and blew it up to like the size of a billboard and then just fucking blasted it with a machine gun. And wherever the holes went, that's where the notes went. And like, that's such a cool idea of letting randomness be part of your creative process. Does that song sound any good? Like, absolutely fucking not. And that was sort of the experience that I had personally over and over. It was just like, these are cool ideas that don't make anything I want to listen to personally. I did learn a lot about orchestration, about working with ensembles. I did learn a lot about the compositional process. So I, again, I want to point out, it wasn't a worthless endeavor. I learned quite a bit, but I did. A big part of me went to that school because I was scared to start. And then the thing that happened when I got out was I realized, okay, I have some more compositional jobs, but I can either do what a lot of people 
in this program end up doing, which is trying to be a composer, like in the classical scene in the Bay Area, where you're like, largely you make no money. You do like these little performances and like little kind of like basement venues and stuff. And like, it ends up being a massively expensive degree that you earn to kind of have what ends up amounting to a hobby, whether you want it to or not. And I was like, I don't want that. And this was kind of the point where I went, okay, well, what do I want? And it was like, dummy, you've wanted to do video games this whole time. Like you, you know that. And then again, with the prompting of my, of my wife, I kind of started to look at myself and go, okay, well, what don't I know? If I actually really want to do this thing that still feels insane to me, it feels like saying I want to be an astronaut, you know, at the time. And so I had to look at my, my holes. And the biggest one was anything on the technology side. I didn't know how to mix or master things. I didn't know how to use a DAW. I barely knew what a DAW was. I had to literally learn all that stuff from scratch on my own. And part of that goes back to that, that micro jam process. It was also to learn the technological side of what I needed. But looking back on it, I think the kind of important thing is that I went to graduate school or whatever your grad school might be, if you're thinking about doing something to kind of stave off how scary the world is. And it is, I went to graduate school. I did learn a lot of great stuff, but then when I got out, I had the same experience I would have had if I had never gone. I just had it later instead of, you know, getting out and going, now I feel ready. I was like, I'm still really scared and I'm not quite ready to like lose my mind and go get a PhD to like stave this off further. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have, my name's Ryan and I have a PhD in bleep blorpin. Like, no, stop it. So I had the same experience of like having to look at myself and be like, okay, this is what I want. I have to be honest with myself. I want this. What do I need to get there that I don't have? And then teaching it to myself was my experience. And did I learn a lot of great things in grad school? Yes. Do I think maybe, uh, especially because I've taught myself additional music theory and additional compositional techniques and additional arranging and you know other compositional tools I've taught myself since grad school. Could I probably have just finished college and had this same revelation with a little more work to do on my own and skipped going to grad school for three years? Like, yes. Like, I, I think looking back like 100%, I don't know that that's everyone's experience but as someone who, who partially did an academic endeavor to stave off having to try this thing that was really hard and scary, like I would maybe encourage people to just examine, like, do I need to do this? Will I benefit from this enough to make it worth it? And you might. And then awesome. Like, absolutely go for it. Um, I think for me, with this specific field where like you literally don't even know to, need to go to college or have a GED <laughs> to work in game music, like nobody cares. They, they care if you can do it. That's it. You can be like a 14 year old, like music prodigy who's like insanely mm-hmm. good at chip tune. I'm like, they don't give a shit. Like, I guess there's, you know, the law, <laughs> like you gotta be old enough to actually like work fine. But other than uncle Sam sticking his fingers in my video game pie, <laughs> you know, my point is that like, you're going to hit that point. I think all of us do where it's just like, you're on this precipice and it's like, I have to decide if I'm ready to just jump. And I wish I had let myself get there sooner instead of kind of staving it off. It's my personal experience because I would have largely, I think had the same path I had now of like, okay, self-teach for a while, work on this practice. And I could have maybe skipped a bunch of educational debt <laughs> that we had to deal with for a minute. Yeah. I'm, and I'm curious, like when you're done or when you finally admitted that, okay, it's video game time. I think you and I are both in the same boat of we both hate networking, but we do it because we have to. Yeah. And we know it's important. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people hate it. And that's great. I want to hear from your point of view what those initial networking days were like when no one knew who you were. You'd had no uh, games under your belt. 
even after gunpoint what that was like because it still sucks for a while even after a big project and how you kind of dealt with it and how you deal with it now you're really gonna blow me up like this on your own fucking show you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna do i hate to it me? too <laughs> no 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 you asked specifically about like my early days doing this and you know very much how that went so i <laughs> just want everyone listening to know that akash is a monster he knows what he's doing he's lifting up the shirt over my hideous elephant man body and going look <laughs> look at him we're fine let's go I, listen i just want you to inspire the children oh this will this will be plenty inspirational for sure I didn't network at all. <laughs> I really didn't want to for a long time. I knew I had to, but it was just, I was definitely in the camp of people that wanted to get really good at the thing I did and eventually get discovered and have something blow up enough that that would be my end. And that doesn't happen <laughs> to almost anyone. Like, I think we, we can all probably dig hard enough or we know someone who knows someone who like that happened to your chances are astronomically low. There are so many people on the internet trying to get into the thing you want to get into. So many of them are insanely talented, even if you are too. And it's just like, I'm not trying to <laughs> demoralize anyone, but like, you know, if you're hearing this and you're like, I was like, please just skip that part and go right to the part where you go, okay, I'm scared to network. I hate this. It sucks. But just know that you have to, you can be middling to above average at your thing. And if you're good at networking, you will get way more jobs than the people who are complete virtuosos and never do it. Like thousand percent, like you will be like completely blasting by them in the career space, even though they might be better than you. It doesn't matter. Like you have to do it. So my early days, part of this was, I think, stunted by the the way I got my first job, which was the only quote unquote networking I was doing, which this does count, I guess I shouldn't do air quotes, but it's not as good as doing it in person was um like through Twitter. I was starting to kind of like get into the game audio space there. Twitter is a Nazi toilet. We all know that, but it... <laughs> does it does have a really robust game audio scene akash and i both know at this point and he's a proponent that instagram is way better and cleaner and safer and happier and healthier in every way so do your networking there but at the time i was on twitter kind of meeting game audio people and kind of building like a little network of other people trying to do what i was doing there and that was that was what i had that was where i felt comfortable it's like it's not going to an event and talking to people and I got really lucky because the way my first game, Gunpoint, kind of made itself known to people in the audio space was the developer, Tom, posted some footage of the game and said, hey, I'm, I'm working on this. If folks want to score this video and send it to me, I will treat this like an audition, essentially, and choose who's going to work on it from that. And I just got really, really, really lucky and happened to like see one of my game audio, my recent game audio friends post that they were doing this. And I was like, what? And like literally clicked on it and like figured it out what was going on like right before I did leave to teach. If I had left a minute earlier, I would have missed it. And so that was how I got my first one. I, I auditioned. I eventually got selected, which still feels wild to me because like at the time, really famous people like C418 from Minecraft and, and shit were auditioning and like, you know, really talented folks. And so like, I'm very grateful for that. But I think it stunted me a bit because I, I didn't have to go out and like shake hands and like I hadn't gone really to many like PAXs or GDCs or, or anything like that. Like I think I had done one PAX before then and that was it. And so it kind of reinforced my idea that I didn't need a network because I kind of, I kind of really hadn't for the most part, right? Like Twitter, yes, it counts as a network, but like I hadn't done the, the legwork of like going out and meeting people and like setting up meetings and stuff. And so I think that led to the fact that when Gunpoint came out, I really leaned into this idea that like, this is this is great. This was a huge hit. 
which it definitely was like this set us up financially for for a good while in a way that our broke asses had not seen in some minute and so i was like okay we're we're good and like now this will be when people start approaching me and you know the super didn't happen like wicked didn't happen i got a couple bites here and there from projects that were like very new and like kind of first games and stuff nothing wrong with that but like they didn't finish they didn't make it to market i didn't get paid for anything and it was like a big lull and that was because of two reasons i had my big boy britches i thought and i i thought i didn't need to network and also because of that i wasn't networking the whole time i was writing the soundtrack for gunpoint a lesson i learned eventually later is that even when you have work even when you're full up you need to be doing it all the time not to the point where you're stressing out or, or, or freaking yourself out about it but like you you can't stop you can't just have a lull when you have work and only network when you don't have work so you need to be setting up for future lulls so then i started kind of trying to be like okay i gotta actually get out there and do this and my horrific first experience that i'll never <sighs> forgive you for making me <laughs> talk about on this podcast was i went to pax and i had like a whole stack of like really shoddily put together like demo cds <laughs> like in the thin like jewel cases like burned cds with like sharpie like saying what was on them and like a folded piece of printer paper into roughly a square like jammed into the fucking like front of the case with like my logo and way too much information about where to find me and in like really flimsy like it, i might as well have printed my business cards on like baloney rectangles like super super like wobbly like noodly little guys <laughs> if you were if you were greasy because you've just eaten a hot dog from the convention center and i put this in your palm it would just like and turn invisible <laughs> <laughs> so that was what I went to PAX armed with, and I had no idea how to network at all. Uh, and so I didn't do what I should have done, which is just make friends, which is hard in and of itself. And I don't mean to trivialize that. Like, that's super fucking hard. But just like talk to people, find out what they're about, like try to like spark a genuine actual connection because everybody in the game industry hires people they know and like. That's it. So, like, and you'd much rather be honest with yourself, work with people you know and like anyway. So it's like, it's, that's how it goes. Instead, I went around from table to table talking to developers who are there showing their games, which Ryan from 12 years ago, that means that the game's out and they already fucking have somebody who did the music because it's playing at the thing, dog. They did it already. What are you doing? Like, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, once they hear this banging, like, shakily handed over, like, plastic ass demo, it'll blow their previous composer out of the water and they'll fire on the spot to hire <laughs> me to do Horde 2. What was I fucking thinking? And so, like, I went around and handed out these, like, noodly, like, wimpy, fucking flimsy business cards and these demos to people who many devs, because of just social obligation and awkwardness took them very sweet very heroic and anybody who didn't just put it like in the garbage in front of me like while making eye contact with me is like a, a saint because like why would they want this you know like i <laughs> why would anyone trying to show their work at a show suddenly want to be like here let me let me take this cd home and listen to it when i already have a working relationship with someone but I super didn't know what I was doing. So I very like sweatily went around packs, like handing these out. It was a fucking nightmare uh, because I was doing that. I wasn't making like good connections with people, you know, on the friendship side. So I was just going around kind of trying to push myself. I didn't 
investigate it because it was too emotionally devastating. But I'm pretty sure at one point in the bathroom, I found a stack of my cards just like on a urinal <laughs> that I hadn't put there. <laughs> just slowly soaking up the ambient wetness of a um, men's bathroom in a convention center. Because again, they were basically sponge like in their in their thinness. And it went so bad. And I don't have to ask any listeners to guess how much work I got out of that because <laughs> literally fucking none. <laughs> But hopefully that makes you feel better <laughs> about your first networking experience. What I what I should have done was had my music, my best stuff available in the easiest way possible. I should have had, you know, probably first of all, business cards that could withstand like a slight breeze or an unkind word without disintegrating. But secondly, you know, they <laughs> they just need a link where people can hear my best shit really easily if they want it. And what I should have been doing was just going around and like meeting whoever, anybody who's in the industry. You know, yes, sure, people at the table showing stuff, but not like trying to get them to hire me when I'm already there showing their stuff. I should have gone and tried to make friends and like shown genuine interest in what they were showing. So a lot of it was super, super cool. Seeing what other developers and even other audio people I could meet there and just like, I, I know this now. And this is, of course, how I do things now, but I should have just been trying to make friends. And if an opportunity came up for us to like trade cards so we could check out each other's work later, great. But it didn't have to be as horrifying and awful and sweaty and obtuse as I made it because the the actual way that networking works is much much easier and simpler than that even though it's still hard and scary I wonder if how well they clean the Washington State Convention Center if I could still, <laughs> like if one of my shitty demo CDs is like swept behind a kiosk somewhere and I could still like find it that would really just devastate me if I, <laughs> if I saw one of those ever again <laughs> So let's hope that I'm sure they I'm sure they're very thorough over there, professionals all around. Thank God. <laughs> but something really important is that now you have the career, right? You you did the painful, terrible, awful starting, which all of us have to deal with in some way, shape, or form. And now you have like the full time music career. And you actually, I think out of anybody I know in this space have the best work-life balance because you're like I, like in the early days of our friendship i text you like oh let's hang out you're like oh i'm sorry we're going to a vegan ice cream island that we funded like oh i'm so sorry we're going to pick loganberries on like it's a loganberry festival we actually are the heads of loganberry festival like your work-life balance with <laughs> you and your wife is very 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 good and infuriatingly so it's just like oh he's doing everything right like it just <laughs> makes me so angry sometimes how wholesome you are uh so yeah i'm wondering like how how did you kind of get to that point when everybody else in this field is basically working 21 hours a day and sacrificing so much and they don't even want to be doing that but they feel they have to that's a good question i do need to circle back on the fact that like you're you're coming off really bitter and sour that you didn't get in on the kickstarter for vegan ice cream island like it's not a good look on you it's actually pretty ugly and i like sorry that you don't spot a good investment when you see it he said to like the finance person that i know <laughs> so yeah i i think a lot of it stems from the fact that like for the first like five years of our marriage, like my wife and I basically didn't see each other. We lived in the same place and she got up really early to go work a job on the campus where she was going to grad school. She had a job there. And then she would get home around like 3.34 and I would have to leave between 2.30 and 3.30 every day. So we would always like just miss each other. And then I was out until 10 or 11 most nights, depending how far away I had to drive. And she had to get up early. So she would either be asleep or close to asleep when I got back. And that was kind of, except for, you know, the occasional weekend day we could sneak, that was the deal for years. 
And I'm not saying we're the only people who have that situation, but I think we ended up taking from it like, hey, we're we're like newly married and we're barely seeing each other because that's just what the hustle kind of has to be to get by. And so once I started getting enough projects that like scarcity wasn't so crazy on my end of things and she started getting, you know, more secure work in in her field in localization and like scarcity wasn't so crazy for us. I think it caused us to really internalize like we can never go back to that. Like, in fact, we want to twist it almost in the opposite direction where we have, you know, a better work-life balance than a lot of people doing what either of us does. That's not always possible. It's not currently the most sterling, like perfect work-life balance for either of us just because of the way, you know, current projects are shaking out. But I was very lucky, you know, both to have a partner who supported this and reinforced it and to also kind of come to the realization. It's like, it doesn't matter if I'm doing the thing I've always wanted to do, which I am. I'm very lucky in that. It doesn't matter if I'm tired all the time, if I never have time to read a book or play a video game or watch dumpster TV on Netflix or travel or, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. I won't, I'll, I'll be miserable doing the thing I've always wanted to do. And what's the point of that? And so I kind of, as early as I could try to map, because I have just as a freelance and asshole fucking <laughs> self-employed clown, I can do whatever I want to some extent. <laughs> And so because my wife had more of a normal like nine to five that she couldn't control as much, we didn't see each other for like four years. I'm going to map my schedule onto hers so that when she's off, I'm off. And for a long time, I was bad about those boundaries still. Like I was like, this is when I'm off, but I'm still like answering emails and like, you know, answering Skypes from people and stuff. I tried to remember like what came before Slack and it was like Skype and it was awful. And I'm still kind of like at work, but I'm not hunched over my little orc music corner in that apartment. But over time, that solidified more to where now it's once 5.30, 6 o'clock hits on a normal day, like I vaporize from the face of the earth <laughs> if you're one of my clients. Like uh, I love all my clients. I'm very excited to be working with all of them. So if you're listening, like do not take this personal, but like bye. Like I'm a phantom. Like you can't, you can email me all you want. You can send me Slack messages. That's awesome. Like I'll see that shit tomorrow because I am not here. Same thing whenever possible, uh, which normally it is possible for me. Very, very luckily the weekends are just sacrosanct. I don't work on those. I don't even co really into this room. Uh, I'm broadcasting currently from my, you know, office space, my studio. And it's like that. I'm very lucky to have a door in our apartment that I can close and just be like, this place is dead to me. It's the fucking cask of Amontillado. I just like wall it off <laughs> like, with heavy stones that then every Monday I'm like, God damn it, the stones. Why did I? But, you know, it <laughs> it helps to set up that mental divide that I really need. I should really lace this place with bones too to really kind of That'll do yeah, it. sell the crypt. Like we don't go, we don't talk about that room kind of atmosphere that I want on the weekends. And I think it's, really important to try to do that and and examine your own life in a creative space and go, what would I want my boundaries to be? Like how much free time would I want to have for personal projects or just relaxing and vegging around or, you know, travel, whatever it is, how much free time do I actually want? And then what's possible? And if they line up, awesome. If they don't, I think setting rigid boundaries for yourself and for your clients about getting things as close to that possibility space at least as you think you can like it is so helpful it is so helpful it is i shouldn't even say helpful it is necessary in the game industry a common fact that is bandied about is that the average length of someone's career in this field is five years there are plenty of people who make it much longer there are lots of people who make it much much less time because the burnout is so insane between crunch and the stress of networking and just it is it puts so much stress on people and 
a huge factor in mitigating that for me has been being really strict about when I'm off, I'm off. Every now and then I fall down on that. I still answer a Slack from time to time. I still answer an email. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but for the most part, being like a light switch, like I'm not at work anymore. You can't get me. I treat it like it's an office space that I've driven away from. Why would I go back in there and answer a few more emails? Like, fuck that. I'll be back tomorrow. It's fine. And I think the people who set up those boundaries for themselves are the ones who are able to kind of sustain being in this industry longer. And I, I like to always drop a note here too, whenever I'm talking about this, that like your free time doesn't have to be special or important. Like, I think that's the thing a lot of people worry about. It's like, well, I need to make space so that I can write my amazing like side, like prog rock album, or I can take up a new hobby or learn a new language. It's like, fuck that. Like you can watch three seasons of Selling Sunset if you want, like in a row, all in one day. Watch Christina and her fucking crazy earrings like be mean to everybody and make a million dollars an episode. Well, I'm over here fucking trying to like emotionally like interact with people through music and like we'll we'll see if I make it. Like whatever. But she's a jerk to everyone and she gets paid like insane sag after rates, and that's great. And I'm happy for her. The point is that it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be valuable what you do. If it's recharging for you, if it's restorative, even if it's watching dumpster TV or whatever it is, or just playing video games, you know, for a day, like that's awesome. It's it's your time. People don't get to tell you how valuable what you do with it is, but you need to have it. You need to make that space mm-hmm. for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I think what's really important about what you just said is that the free time doesn't have to be important. Like, you know me, I'm a crazy work person, but I actually enjoy it. That's something I actually look forward to. Don't be like me. Be more like Ryan, for sure. 100% of the time, be more like Ryan. But like, you know, now I also play Final Fantasy 14. It does nothing for our brains. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna blow yourself up on your own show, huh? You're gonna admit that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's really important, right? It's like if you are doing something that's quote unquote off time, it can be stupid. You and I do a bunch of stupid stuff. So much stupid stuff. <laughs> I would maybe <laughs> say exclusively stupid stuff. Yeah, like I have my hobbies that I think are more restorative, like running D D for people because that's social time with close friends and stuff and telling a story and it's creative. And then I have like you know, I'm going to watch all of Invincible on Amazon for like a day, like the goriest fucking superhero show I've ever seen. And now I'm like, I'm changed. I, I watched a turtle get pancaked by a semi truck on 8th Avenue out in front of my house. And I felt nothing. Just like, well, he was here and now he's not. But the point is, <laughs> what was I saying? I kind of, everything got hazy there for a second. But yeah, I, I agree. The, the time is yours to do with what you want. And you shouldn't, you know, guilt yourself into it only being worthwhile time off if it is doing something massive and and supposedly productive Mm -hmm. it should be restorative to you whatever that means yeah 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 i yeah yeah that's that's very true restorative is the key word i have two questions to wrap up and the first one is a answer that everyone gives super differently so i'm very curious about yours and i've actually never asked you this before as a friend uh so when you're first starting out in music, sound stuff, whatever that may be, and starting out could be when you start playing piano when you're little or when you went to undergrad or grad school, whatever starting point you want to define, how did you define success and what is that definition now and how has that changed over time? <sighs> Fucking hell. <laughs> I'm going to be kind of an art jerk and say that my my starting point was very early because I have been a musician since I was a little kid. And that has always been a key component to my identity. Like I've been playing piano, like that was that was like my thing since I was four was music. So I'm going to start it early. And I think what's kind of the bummer 
this will pull up, I swear. But what's, <laughs> what starts out sounding like a huge bummer is that I think when I started out, there was definitely a, a couple of years as a kid where it's just the way kids are, where it's just like, sure, it's great when I play for friends or family and they like it. But it was just like, am I having fun? Am I restored by and enjoying what I'm playing, the music I'm learning, you know, playing the 90s X-Men theme literally on an hour and a half long loop until my super supportive mom finally snapped and shrieked at me to like cut it the fuck out. Like that was as much as my little kid brain could define success. But I think if I were to go back and, you know, explain that concept to little me, like that was it. It was like, am I enjoying this? Is this fulfilling and nourishing to me? And that was all it took. And then there was a long point where it was, what do other people think of this? Mm-hmm. It kind of morphed into like other people's opinions of my work. Like, are people satisfied with what I'm doing? Are they enjoying what I'm doing? You know, it didn't matter so much if I was liking it. It mattered solely what other people think about it. And I think the place that I'm kind of trying to land in now is, uh, I think, a place a lot of creatives hopefully try to tend toward, which is the, a balance between those things. If I'm not fulfilled with what I'm doing, you know, if it's just like a stagnant drone to me, it doesn't really matter if people love it like i won't be satisfied i won't be happy we don't always have the luxury of being happy at work but like what's the point of working in a creative field if you're not able to at least try to make something that even if it's not the thing you would make given infinite resources you know and infinite time like something that you can at least enjoy it for what it is and then i still have that need for outside validation that i think a lot of creative people probably share where it's like yeah i do care what other people think of this i do i do want them to like what i make and to engage with what I make. I think that's natural. I don't think that's completely unhealthy. But finding that balance where it's like, you know, it doesn't always matter what everybody thinks about you. And it doesn't always matter if you think you've made the best thing, if you can find like a balance between those. I think that's kind of the key. And that's definitely something I'm improving on, but it's it's a it's a constant process because there are days where I think everybody hates everything I've ever made. And there are days where I think I'm a baller who like can't <laughs> can, can write like prog rock like banjo like scream metal and it's going to sound awesome and it won't it, it just won't sound what that's all that all those words i said won't sound good but you know there are days when i think i can pull it off and so finding that balance of internal and external validation i think is sort of the the place i i'm working on landing on nice all right so last question is where can people find you websites social media all that stuff sure uh so i'm unfortunately on twitter at my name plus my job, really imaginative. So at Ryan Ike, composer, see a cartoon of my dumb head, that's me. And then I'm on Instagram at Ryan Ike Audio. And in both places, I tend to post a lot of content about what I'm working on, kind of breaking down my process for creating different music and sound design resources. I do a lot of talking about both being a a just generic freelancer and trying to kind of be a creative freelancer and then more specifically trying to make it in game audio. So if any of those things are of interest to you, I think I have a lot of resources to share on that. You can find me on my website at ryanike.com and most of my music is available. You know, just search my name. You'll find me on Bandcamp, Spotify, you know, iTunes, all the all the regular spots. And you know, I I try to kind of be as helpful and supportive in the game audio space as I can. I'm sure I could always do more, but I had a lot of folks give me a good leg up, you included, when I was getting started. And so it's one of those things that I'm just kind of in the process of trying to help the next kind of generation of people like step their way in. And so if that's something that interests you, you can check me out in those places. 
amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ryan, for being on here. It was good. It's so good. So good. It was, it was great. It was good. Except for the, the, the part where you made me talk about my wet, wet business cards. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash sound pod. Sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and will teach you how to work in the world of video game, music, and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.